Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse describes how the socialist ideal of equality has played an independent role in the breakdown of the family, arguing that socialism has attacked the family directly and has adopted policies that have led to demographic collapse. This presentation was delivered as part of the 2008 Acton Lecture Series. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash actonvault. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Uh, Today's lecture is being given by um, a lady who has been known to the Acton Institute uh, and deeply involved in our work, I suppose right from the very beginning, so for almost uh, 18 years of the Institute's existence. Uh, Jenny Roback morse is a PhD in economics, but what's interesting about Jenny is she doesn't talk so much about economics per se, her interest really Uh, is marriage, sexuality, and family, and she writes a great deal about how uh, trends are developing in those areas in the United States and abroad, but also the economic implications of what it means when families, the dynamics of families, the nature of families, the structure of families starts to change. It's often said, I believe, that demography is destiny, Uh, and that's a classic example where we see economics and thinking about the nature of the family come into dialogue with each other. Now, uh, Jenny has had a very long and illustrious career. Uh, She is a committed career woman before she had children, and she did a doctorate, uh, I believe, at Rutgers. That's right, Rutgers. And she then spent 15 years teaching at Yale University and George Mason. In 1991, I I suspect she probably... uh, Uh, changed a great deal of her life when she and her husband adopted a two-year-old Romanian boy and then they were lucky enough to give birth to a baby girl. Uh, In 1996 she left her full-time university teaching post to move with her family to California where she was a research fellow at Stanford's university's Hoover Institution. Uh, Since, I believe, 2005, 2006, she's been a part-time research fellow, or I should say a senior fellow in economics at the Acton Institute. And she writes and speaks about uh, love, marriage, sexuality in the family all around the country. Let me mention a couple of her books that I I suspect some of you may be interested in. I think one of her really excellent books is Love and Economics, Why the Laissez-Faire Family Doesn't Work, which was published in 2001 by Spence Publishing. Uh, She's also the author of uh, Smart Sex, Finding Lifelong Love in a Hookup World, which was published in 2005. She's also written extensively uh, for newspapers, both religious and secular in nature. Uh, She's spoken at conferences organized by the Vatican. Uh, She's also written a great number of scholarly articles as well, Uh, and she currently lives in Vista, California. Uh, She also has her own website, and if you Google Jennifer Roback Morse, the website will come up. 
Uh, but those of you who are interested in, in her work and her ideas and the types of things that she's doing and speaking about in the United States and around the world, she has an email uh, newsletter which goes out on a regular basis. There's a sign-up list for it here. So any of you who are interested in signing up to her email list, I'll pass this around so that those of you who wish to do so can do so. Uh, the subject of today's lecture... <clears throat> The subject of today's lecture is, I guess, a good mixture of politics and economics. It's called Freedom, the Family, and the Market, a humane response to the socialist attack on the family. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Ruback Morse. Uh, I'm really delighted to be here in Grand Rapids and to have the opportunity to address all of you on this topic. The, um, as Sam said, I've been involved with the Acton Institute since the very beginning. Um, I remember Chris when he was an undergraduate um, at Johns Hopkins and Father Sirico when he was a seminarian at Catholic U. So we go back way be even before the Acton Institute was founded. So my lecture today, as Sam said, is called Freedom, the Family, and the Market a humane response to the socialist attack on the family. And you will see some of the overlap of the various Acton ideas as well as the issues of the family. <clears throat> Many critics accuse capitalism of destroying the family. Industrialism drew fathers out of the home to earn a living, and a 100 years later, the women followed. But economic pressures on the family are incidental to the main structures of the market economy. By contrast, the socialist attack on marriage has been central to socialist ideology from the very beginning and continues right down to the present hour. Those of us who are free market advocates sometimes view socialism as principally an economic ideology with the attacks on the family as a mere sideshow. I believe this is a mistake. I believe it's more accurate to view the socialist attack on the family and marriage in particular as simply a second front on their, in their war in attempt to centralize society entirely under the control of the state. So in this lecture, I'm going to make three points. First, I'm going to show that socialism is just as committed to abolishing the universal institution of marriage as it has been to abolishing the universal institution of private property. Second, I will show that the socialist program of eliminating gender differences and attacking marriage have serious consequences for economic and personal freedom. And finally, I will show that Christianity offers more appealing solutions to the problems that socialism claims to be solving. So first, let's deal with gender and marriage in socialist thought. Now looking at American sexual politics, person might conclude that absolute sexual equality in all areas of life was something that desperate socialists came up with when they realized they could never win on purely economic issues. But socialism has had marriage in its crosshairs from the very beginning. Frederick Engels equated the dominance of men over women with the dominance of capitalists over workers. He writes of an early, almost mythical period in which group marriage, without concern for who was whose parent, was the norm. According to Engels, the transition from group marriage to monogamy marked the beginning of the subordination of women. And I hear I'm quoting Engels. Quote, the overthrow of mother right was the world historical defeat of the female sex. 
The man took command in the home also. The woman was degraded and reduced to servitude. She became a slave of his lust and a mere instrument for the production of children, close quote. He argues further that the economic and legal status of women is intimately connected to the organization of the household. I ask your indulgence for an extensive quotation from Engels. I'm not, as they say, making this up. Quote, the legal inequality of the two partners bequeathed to us from earlier social conditions is not the cause, but the effect of the economic oppression of women. In the old communist household, which comprised many couples and their children, the task entrusted to women of managing the household was as much a public, a socially necessary industry as the procuring of food by the men. With the patriarchal family, and still more with the single monogamous family, a change came. Household management lost its public character. It no longer concerned society. It became a private service. The wife became the head servant, excluded from all participation in social production. Within the family, the husband is the bourgeois, and the wife represents the proletariat. The first condition for the liberation of the wife is to bring the whole female sex into public industry. This, in turn, demands that the characteristic of the monogamous family as the economic unit of society be abolished. Close quote. Now, this perspective of Engels helps explain why so many on the left have been essentially undisturbed by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, free market advocates didn't appreciate the fact that the command economy was only one front on the war for collective society. I thought, perhaps you thought, that when Soviet communism collapsed, that would be the end of it. The Marxists would get it, and they'd all go home. But in fact, they did no such thing. The collectivization of the family is the other, and perhaps the more serious front. That yearning for the mythic communal past of group marriage and group responsibility for childcare explains a number of the priorities of the lifestyle left. Women belong in the market employment, not just because they enjoy the work or they need the money. Women belong in the market because working mothers require some form of childcare outside the home. The left is indifferent to the rise in unmarried childbearing and the increase in the divorce rate because these, quote, alternative family forms, which is what they call them, these family forms reduce the dependence of the mother on the child's biological father and increase the demand for state-supported social services. So I will now show how weakening marriage diminishes both economic and personal freedom. Now, many of us support one of the stated objectives of feminism of creating equal opportunities and incomes for women. But even this relatively innocuous goal gave the left political entree into regulating wages and working conditions that American society would never have accepted on any other terms. Full income equality requires equal behaviors, not only in the market, but also at home. Men and women are so different that they are unlikely, highly unlikely, to volunteer to behave identically in all the ways that would be necessary to literally equalize incomes. So now we have not only laws against wage discrimination, we also have regulations for hiring, firing, and promotion. We have rules about workplace behavior that might create a, quote, hostile environment. We have regulations of the schools to make sure that women and girls feel welcome, so much so that now women outnumber men in most undergraduate college programs. 
The federal government demands equality in, in college athletic programs, and some feminist advocates advocate regulating the numbers of students in math, science, and engineering programs, which are the last male-dominated bastions within academic life. Socialist Spain even passed a law requiring husbands to do half the housework, if you can imagine such a thing. Now, <clears throat> because the left considers monogamous marriage a central part of the capitalist system of private property, they have put enormous energy into destabilizing marriage. Liberalizing divorce laws was one of the very first actions of the Bolsheviks in Russia in 1917 and of the socialist government in Spain in 2005. Our American experience with no-fault divorce illustrates why the advocates of centralized state power are so interested in divorce. Presented to the public as a great expansion of personal liberty, no-fault divorce has led to an increase in the power of the government over individual private lives. No-fault divorce frequently means unilateral divorce. That is, one party wants a divorce against the wishes of the other who wants to stay married. Therefore, the divorce has to be enforced. That means the coercive machinery of the state has to be wheeled into action to separate the reluctantly divorced party from the joint assets of the marriage, which usually means the family home and the children. Family courts then end up telling people what to do in order to enforce this separation, which one of them didn't really want. Family courts tell fathers how much money they have to spend on their children and how much time they get to spend with them. Courts tell mothers whether they can move away from their children's fathers. Courts rule on whether a father's attendance at a little league game, a public event which anyone can attend, whether his attendance at a little league game counts toward his visitation time. Courts rule on which parents gets to spend Christmas Day with the children, down to and including the precise time of day that they have to turn the child over to the other parent. Involving the family court in the minutia of family life amounts to an unprecedented intrusion of the state into the private lives of individuals. And it's a blurring of the boundaries between private and public life. People under the jurisdiction of family courts can have virtually all of their private lives subject to its scrutiny through psychological evaluations and the like. If the courts are influenced by an ideology such as feminism, that ideology will end up reaching into the bedroom and kitchen of every household in America. Now, at the same time, the breakup of families or the failure of families to form in the first place leads to an expansion of state authority and expense. Children from disrupted families do worse than the children of intact marriage couples in virtually every way you can think of. Children are more likely to have physical and mental health problems. Even accounting for the differences in income between fatherless homes and intact homes, fatherless boys are more likely to be aggressive and to ultimately become incarcerated. A recent British study offers tantalizing hints about the possibility that, single, that the children of single mothers are more likely to become schizophrenic. And an extensive study of family structure in Sweden took account of the mental illness history of the parents as well as the family's socioeconomic status. Yet even in the most generous welfare state in the world, Sweden, 
with very accepting attitudes toward unmarried parenting. I mean, we couldn't really top Sweden in that department, could we? The children of single parents still are at higher risk of psychiatric disease, suicide attempts, and substance abuse, even in Sweden. <clears throat> now, all of these social pathologies are expensive to the taxpayer and painful to the individuals. Most people would consider this to be a disadvantage of family breakdown. But Marxists do not share this view. From their perspective, the family, the married couple family, is a conservative tool for, quote, privatizing the care of the young, a responsibility that ought to be assumed by the state. The latest leftist strategy has been to insist that marriage should not be, quote, privileged as the normal context for child-rearing. The state should be, quote, neutral and not discriminate among family forms. <clears throat> to see that this demand is not as reasonable as it sometimes sounds, imagine somebody making the comparable argument for free markets. They might argue that the government should be neutral between private property and collective property, between enforcing contracts or not enforcing contracts. People who want contracts should pay to have them enforce themselves. They should not ask the government to subsidize their private and possibly irrational preference for private property and contracts. Now, I don't think very many free market advocates would accept that kind of claim, that the state should be indifferent between a centrally planned economy and a market-ordered economy. An economy built on the ideas of the Communist Manifesto will quite necessarily look very different from an economy built on the ideas and the wealth of nations. The debate between socialism and capitalism is not a debate over how to accommodate different opinions. It's a debate over how the economy actually works. Everything from the law of contracts to antitrust to commercial law will all reflect some basic understanding of how the economy works in fact. Similarly, the debate over marriage is a debate over what marriage is and how it works in fact. I claim that the sexual urge is the natural engine of sociability which solidifies a relationship between spouses and brings children into being. Others claim that human sexuality is a private recreational good with no moral or social significance. I claim that children have the best life chances when they are raised by their married biological parents. Others believe that children are so adaptable that having unmarried parents presents no significant problems. Some people believe that marriage is a special case of the free association of individuals. I say the details of this particular form of free association are so distinctive as to make marriage a unique social institution that deserves to be defended on its own terms and not as a special case of something else. <clears throat> One side in this dispute is mistaken. There's enormous room for debate, but ultimately, there's no room for compromise. The legal institutions, social expectations, and cultural norms will all reflect some view or another about the meaning of marriage. Trying to build a free society without marriage is like trying to build a prosperous economy without property rights. It sounds good on the chalkboard, but in reality, it simply can't be done. But perhaps the most destructive result of the attack on marriage has been the destruction of the little civil society of the family. In most societies, in most times and places, the married couple is the most basic unit of social cooperation. A man and a woman come together spontaneously to create a child and then work together to raise that child. 
Marxists believe that that cooperation is simply a fiction, a mere cover for the relationship of male dominance and power. Now, in countries where that Marxist belief has been institutionalized, the combination of ideology and taxes and benefits have subsidized unmarried motherhood. According to Patricia Morgan, writing for the Institute for Economic Affairs in London, some British government officials hold that, quote, the treatment of a married couple as a single financial unit should be discouraged, along with any predisposition in favor of the nuclear family, close quote. The state is presumed responsible for the support of children of unmarried parents. For all practical purpose, purposes, that means that the married and the childless are paying and are being taxed to pay for the children of the unmarried. Now, the results of that discrimination against marriage is that many women, particularly lower income and less educated women, now raise children completely on their own with little or no assistance from the child's father. The number of children born to unmarried mothers has increased from 8% in 1970 to 42% in 2004 in the United Kingdom. In the US, 37% of children are now born to unmarried mothers, and among African Americans in the US, over 70% of children are born to unmarried mothers. It's instructive to look at the country that has been most influenced by Marxist ideas, which is, of course, Russia. The old Soviet Union implemented all the main socialist ideas. The family and civil society were destroyed along with the economy. The result is one of the most unstable and unhealthy situations in the world. Because the Soviets discouraged marriage and wrecked the economy, Russia is in the bottom 5% of fertility rates in the whole world. At 1.27 babies per woman, the Russian population will be nearly cut in half every generation. That is to say, we're looking at a shrinking population on, a, uh, on the largest physical country in the world. The population is shrinking. Now, because people were expected to spy on each other for the last two or three generations, nobody trusts anybody else. This further weakens the economy and reduces the propensity to marry and to have children. The net result of all of this is that the Russian worker who's expected to support a rapidly aging population is now less healthy and less productive than virtually any other worker throughout the developed world. So they're not only an aging population, but a very sick population. There won't be anybody really to take care of the elderly people as they age. In the, in, in the Soviet Union, and of course they don't, they don't really have any social security system because there's no capital that anybody set aside to be, to be able to invest to take care of the elderly. Now the final point is that uh, while the left made an idol out of equality, it has become very clear that many people are necessarily excluded from its concern with equality. The physically weak, the incapacitated, the disabled, can never be the equal of the strong. Under the influence of leftist ideas, many countries completely exclude these people from the most basic protections of law. The infant in the womb has been excluded in many secularized countries from any legal protection whatsoever. Euthanasia is sometimes described as mercy killing, but it has become clear that it's often simply killing for convenience. Now, it's not simply that the infirm are not useful, as you might expect from a purely utilitarian perspective. It's that the infirm, I believe, the infirm, the disabled, are an affront to the ideas of equality. 
The child in the womb can't be the equal of the adult. The person at the end of his life can never again be the equal of the young person and the fit person. The disabled person, no matter how many resources are directed towards him, can never be made the equal of the person without disabilities. So they become non-persons. It is certainly the political left throughout the world that has promoted these policies and has offered the most elaborate justifications for them. Fortunately, Christianity proposes an alternative vision of life of what is truly valuable and worth pursuing. Christianity insists that we defend the weak rather than promoting equality. And it's become very clear, I think, that defending the weak is a different ethical mandate from creating equality. Defending the weak, of course, includes the right to life from conception till natural death. Our enemies worldwide are primarily from the left end of the political spectrum who demand equality for every other group in every other circumstance other than life-threatening ones. Christianity, of course, also offers a different vision of gender. Under the Christian vision, we embrace the differences between men and women as part of the divine plan for teaching love and drawing us out of our natural self-centeredness. Marriage is inherently a gender-based institution because it helps men and women to bridge the natural differences that exist between us. Marriage is a school and household of love. Within the household, men and women learn to help each other, to cooperate with each other, and to understand one another. This is very different from the socialist image of husbands and wives at each other's throats in competition for dominance and power inside their own homes. Socialists insist that love, sex, and reproduction be separated from each other for the sake of making men and women equal. But this view necessarily places men and women at odds with each other. Men exploit women for sex, seeing them as objects that simply give pleasure. Women, in turn, exploit men for reproduction, treating them sometimes as a combination of wallet and sperm bank. The Christian vision insists that marriage is the proper context for both sexual activity and child-rearing. The man's sexual desire for woman turns him towards love for her. Christianity insists that this love for her be connected with love for her children. The woman's desire for children turns her heart toward the man who will be the father of her children. Christianity insists that she love her husband rather than use him and discard him. Love, sex, and childbearing are all integrated with each other under the umbrella of marriage within the Christian vision. Now, and Christianity, combined with free market thinking, offers a different solution to the economic inequality between men and women that socialism has tried to promote. Marxist-inspired feminism insisted on identical incomes for men and women at every point in their working lives. This misguided concept of justice has shaped 40 years' worth of public and corporate policy, not to mention 40 years' worth of people's individual personal choices as women came to believe that their primary objective should be to be equal with men in the workforce all the time. But traditional male career trajectories demand the most intense investments early in our lives. By the time women have accomplished enough in their careers to feel financially prepared for motherhood, their peak fertility is often behind them, 
And of course, it takes a long time to figure that out by yourself. By the time you figure it out, it may be too late to do anything about it. And nobody talks to the young women about this fact, that getting tenure, getting their degrees, and all of that stuff is going to postpone their childbearing so long that it may be impossible for them to meet the other important life goals that they have. I say that women would be better off if we simply accepted the reality that our fertility peaks during our 20s. Go to college for a liberal, not a vocational education. Get married. Have kids. Let your husband support you. Maybe go back to school for an advanced degree. Go to work. Help support the kids in college and help support your joint retirement. And since women live longer than men, we could be working longer and let our husbands relax a little bit. Of course, <clears throat> this vision of the workplace also involves an alternative vision of marriage and family. Under this vision, marriage is a lifelong institution for mutual cooperation and support, rather than the unenforceable non-contract that it has become. And I need not say that cooperation between the spouses would be far better for the children. Nor need I say that this is exactly the opposite of the feminist vision, which essentially replaced marital stability with employment stability. You were supposed to feel, find your security in your own ability to work rather than to find any security within your married life. Now, in conclusion, <clears throat> I would like to point out that Catholic social teaching joins with the Dutch Reformed tradition of sphere sovereignty in defending the family as a social institution that is independent of the state. The family is independent of the state and has claims against the state. In Centesimus Annus, John Paul, Pope John Paul uh, reiterates the point that was originally made by Pope Leo XIII way back 100 years before in Rerum Novarum. He said, Leo XIII frequently insisted on the necessary limits to the state's intervention and on its instrumental character inasmuch as the family and society are prior to the state, and inasmuch as the state exists in order to protect the rights of family and society, not to stifle them. Now, as supporters of the Axton Institute, you're well aware that freedom and virtue work together in a symbiotic relationship. The free economy allows individuals to use their talents for the good of the community. The market needs the leavening of the gospel to moderate its excesses, and to provide the virtuous participants who are the foundation, really, of the market's genius. I think it is time to weave the life of the family into this vision of the free and virtuous market and the free and virtuous market participants. The market cannot float on its own bottom. The market needs the other institutions of civil society. Just as the market needs religion to cultivate virtue, the market also needs the family to socialize children to teach cooperation, and to move society forward into the next generation. The Christian social vision focuses on the human person and his capacity for love. Christianity respects the family as the great pre-political social institution and marriage as the most basic unit of social cooperation. The family shapes the next generation and transmits the culture's values to them. The family truly is the cradle of any civilization, especially the civilization of freedom and of love. Thank you very much, and I will be glad to take questions now.
We have plenty of time for questions. And people always have questions at my talks. It, yes, sir. Oh, no, no, the man behind you. And, and there's a microphone going around because they're recording this to podcast it later or to, uh, to, to rebroadcast it. So uh, questions will all go through a microphone so, so that uh, they can be heard on the recording. Hey, Dr. Morris, on the subject of uh, unmarried motherhood, subsidizing unmarried motherhood, I'm kind of wondering if, if some of our churches of many denominations uh, don't in their any abortion work, if they don't encourage uh, unmarried motherhood by emphasizing the uh, keeping of the child, of course, uh, to avoid abortion, but I don't see much effort in, in at least in our town in Kalamazoo, in this uh, realm of work to, in addition, make a great effort to have the child adopted rather than encourage the mother to keep the child and raise it. Do you see this as much of an important stream demographically? Do you think we're contributing to the subsidization of unmarried motherhood by working in this direction? Uh, that, that's a very important question because I, and I'm, I'm aware, very aware of it because I spend a lot of time uh, talking with groups that do this kind of work. So when I'm not talking about economics, a lot of times I'm talking about sex, even though your mom told you don't talk about sex or money. I talk about sex and money all the time. And when I'm talking uh, about, uh, about these issues, um, I've encountered this point because um, I talk with crisis pregnancy workers and counselors and so on. And of course, they're very concerned about this, this very issue. They know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and here's what I hear from them. I, th I consider them a very reliable source of information, okay, because they're actually out there and they're talking to real people. They're not, they're not ideological people. They actually have real, you know, a real experience in front of them. What I hear from them is that it, it, trying to talk a young lady into put, putting her baby up for adoption is a, a non-starter. Uh, it is a complete uphill battle. I've talked to women who have done crisis pregnancy counseling for 20 years and have never seen it happen even though they have tried, okay? So I think what has happened in that sector is that people have given up on the adoption question. Um, and there are a bunch of reasons that go into why it's a non-starter, but it, you know, that's just the reality that they're dealing with. And I don't think that talking harder and more to the girls about that is, is likely to, to change that. Um, where I think there may be some potential um, is to talk to the girls about getting married. Um, and, and the reason that's important, that's an important perspective that the churches can bring to bear, um, is that, as I've already mentioned, um, the people on the political left see the independent mother as a political hero. You know, she's important to them. So they're never going to say, and, and all men oppress all women at all times. So they're never going to say to her, you know, maybe, the, maybe you ought to marry the guy, you know. Um, so, so when I'm talking to crisis pregnancy counselors, one of the things I will say to them is, is look, if you can keep, if the, if the relationship is uh, remotely worth saving, work, try to help them work on saving that relationship if that's possible. They're not every one of these men are complete losers. You know, some of them are complete losers and she's well rid of them. That's true, you know. But not all of them are, right? So um, work with the girls uh, on that point. And I've got data that shows that father involvement is very important and, and, and greatly benefits the children, even if, they're, even if they're not married, even the parents aren't married. It's better if they're married. But even if they're not married, it's better if the father's involved. 
and uh, I've got, got a couple nice slides with the data on it and stuff. You know, and I show them that. I say, you know, talk with them about that. That if, this re you know, if the guy is worth working with, work with him. Don't pick at him. Don't nag at him. Don't, you know, don't drive him away just because you want to do everything your own way, which is, that's, that's the immature um, you know, all of us in our immaturity want to do things our own way, you know. And so with all of the social pressures that we have saying unmarried motherhood's a fine thing, uh, that's a point that the girls often overlook, that if you work with the guy, um, you can, together, the two of you maybe can be a functioning couple and be a functioning family. And that's preferable to a lot of the other things that they're being told and, and working on. So that, it's, a, it's, it's a tough sell, but that's... That's the way I'm approaching it right now. <laughs> in, in, um, in light of further data, I will update my uh, recommendations, but that's, that's what I'm seeing right now as the, as the way to handle that. Yes, go ahead. Yes, the, uh, the, the, divorce, <clears throat> <excuse me. clears throat> the divorce services industry is, is really an industry by any economic definition. Um, uh, but what is known about how big it is, or what, what source of information, uh, where would you go for information about just how much, what is the handle? Um, say something about what you mean by the divorce services industry. Well, I think you know, I think I know what you mean, but I, tell the others what you mean by that. Okay, uh, marriage, from marriage counselors to uh, family courts, uh, uh, the attorneys involved, of course, and uh, any ancillary services. Um, it's actually bigger than that <laughs> um, because many of the courts have ancillary services around them where the courts will order people to get a psychological evaluations. They'll, they'll order people into um, parenting classes. They'll have supervised visitation centers um, where if there's any suspicion of uh, bad behavior by one parent or the other, usually the father the father will be required to visit his child with, at, a super, at a supervised visitation center, which he pays for, um, if, unless he's indigent, he will pay for. So the, the divorce services industry is really quite enormous. I have no idea how big it is. Um, it's too big. Um, and in fact, you can't even get a, an idea of how much the average divorce costs because there's so many variables that go into it. Um, but there's no question about it. It's a huge industry. And, um, and, and when you think about it, when you separate a family, no, truly very, very few people can actu actually afford divorce. You know, most households are devastated by being divided. You know, you have to have a lot of money to be able to pull that off. You know, take, take one household and make two households out of you. That, you know, usually that's pretty darn expensive. Um, but, uh, and, and so then there are all the other services surrounding it. And the true, full economic cost of divorce, I really don't know how big it is. It's huge, though. Just to follow on to the first question, I applaud your, your uh, encouragement toward marriage. But it seems that most of the crisis pregnancies occur to, uh, uh, to uh, basically minors or, or young people uh, who are living in, in home environments and the insurance laws are biased against them getting married. At least if they stay unmarried, they're covered by the parent's uh, insurance policy, right? If they get married, they generally aren't covered. What, uh, what can we do about that conundrum to, uh, that's to resolve a, that's that? A, that is a really excellent point that I had never thought about before. 
Um, the, the people that I know who work with crisis pregnancy centers are working with people who don't even have private insurance. So I think that problem's not on their radar screen. Um, but um, that's an excellent point that I have never really thought about before. The other interesting thing about unmarried childbearing that I'll call to your attention is how much it is no longer simply a phenomenon of the young. Um, that is, single mothers by choice is the new trend. Okay, so teen childbearing is, has actually been falling more or less for the last you know, 10, 20 years. Teen childbearing is on the decline. It's childbearing by women in their 20s, unmarried childbearing by women in their 20s and sometimes even their 30s, where the woman has made a decision to do this by herself. That's the new increase. And the thing that you point out, I don't think is going to be germane to that pop particular population. But that's an excellent point. I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah. The, um, you, you mentioned the declining Russian population, the yes. declining uh, birth rate. Um, that, that made me think that the, you know, with the, the southeast there of Russia is, is Islamic. Uh, have you uh, thought about your area of work, the family and, and sex and the, the four nouns you had there, um, in, in respect of Islam? Do, do, how do your ideas work there? Do you, well, this is a, an excellent question. Um, the, the fact is that um, Islamic society um, has a higher birth rate, you know, pretty much by any way you care to measure it. Um, Islamic societies have higher birth rates than um, secular societies. Religious people generally have higher birth rates. Okay, so even within the U.S., um, the red states are outbreeding the blue states. I don't know if you knew that. But that, their political demographers keep track of this sort of thing. You know that, um, so, so people who have religious background, um, for a whole variety of reasons, people uh, of faith have more babies, um, partly because they get married and stay married, partly because their religion tells them to, partly because they have a belief in the future. Um, you know, partly because they're looking at something beyond themselves, bigger. they're not just calculating on their own self-interest all the time. So that's a general phenomenon of religion. But the Islamic issue is very interesting, partly for Russia, because part of what's going to fill in those empty places of Russia are Islamic families. That's what's going to happen. And that's also what's happening in Europe. Um, because it, within Europe, the, the countries that, are, that have relatively higher birth rates, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. shouldn't make too big of a generalization. One of the higher birth rate countries in Europe is France, and most almost certainly that's Muslim immigration. Uh, Muslim, the higher birth rates among Muslims that are, that are accounting for part of that. So it's a phenomenon in Europe as well as in the Central Asian parts of, uh, of Russia as well. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very serious phenomenon. And the reason that's worth thinking about, that whole picture is very much worth thinking about, is that I think the Christian vision of marriage and family and the future is far more appealing than the Islamic version. You know what I'm saying? I mean, as a woman, I mean, I just kind of prefer the Christian style than the Islamic style. And a lot of our secular brethren don't see any difference. A lot of our secular brethren think, you know, it's all, it's all religion. It's all, they're all whack jobs. You know, they're all equally whack jobs. So it doesn't matter. Well, I don't think that, you know, I actually think there are some important differences. In Islam and Christianity, I don't know about the rest of you, but that's kind of the way I look at it. And so, therefore, what we have to say about marriage and family is far more humane, not only more humane than Islam, it's more humane than the secular view. 
you know, because we have a way of viewing men and women um, that allows us to be women, that allows men to be men, and allows us to collaborate and cooperate with one another, rather than demanding that everybody be somehow the same. And the way it's working out in modern Western society is everybody being the same means that women are supposed to be men in skirts. That's basically, we're, we're allowed to participate in the workforce on equal terms with men as long as we act like men, which means don't have babies, which means when you have babies, put them in daycare. You know? But I say, I claim the right to participate in the workforce as women and not as men in skirts. And I think Christianity gives us a way and a context in, in which we can do that and have that. So I think that's a very important question, a very important distinction between Christianity, Islam, and the secular world. Yes. Thank you. It's so refreshing to hear you counter academia, the uh, secular anti-religious world. Um, is the Marxist quest for equality at heart a childlike rebellion against the standards in order of the Bible and religiosity. And if indeed Christianity is the answer to reasserting the status of both women and children, how do you do that in public education? Okay, let me take the first question first. Is it a, a sort of childlike rebellion against the strictures of the Bible? I think for some people, it's almost certainly the answer is yes. You know, um, I think that um, there are a lot of people who are um, who are rebelling against their own parents, in a sense. You know, and Marxism is a vehicle for doing that. But I also think that a lot of what has developed. Um, is that people are doing Marxist stuff without realizing they're doing Marxist stuff. In other words, feminism has become so much a part of the landscape that people don't realize how much it is a, a Marxist-dominated or Marxist-created ideology. And so I think it's useful. I think it's very helpful for people to realize that that's the case. Um, and that there's a... You could look at it this way. Women have been increasing their participation in the workforce for over a century. The labor force participation of married women has been increasing since 1917, easily, okay? And the big blip around World War II, you know, that just that was just a little disturbance, you know? And then the dropping back into the 50s, the dreaded 50s, you know, we were all, we were all in pearls. Do we all have pearls and aprons and that? Did everybody do that? My, my mom doesn't own any of that stuff, and she... she <laughs> But anyway, yeah, we were all dressed up like June Cleaver and everything and baking cookies and all that. And um, feminism presents itself as being a way of, of pushing women into the next stage of the workforce, into increasing the labor force participation of married women. That that's what it looks like. But in fact, that participation was increasing without feminism. Okay? Women were working more, having jobs, having education, all of those trends were in place well before Betty Friedan. They do not get to take credit for that stuff. They do take credit for it all the time, but they shouldn't be allowed to take credit for it. What they did is they defined the terms on which it would happen. See, what they did is they gave it social meaning. They took that trend and wrapped it up in their ideology 
and not only took credit for it, but also defined what it would be about, you know, and, and said that this is about you becoming independent. This isn't about you using your mind, having a good time, and helping out your family. No, no, this is about you being independent of your husband who has been oppressing you all this time. You just didn't know it. You know, that's, they defined it. And so I think um, what, what we need to be about is to say, no, there's another way to define those same trends. There's another way to give them meaning. And there's another way to do it. There's a, there's a way for women to participate in the labor force and in higher education without it being a contest all the time, without it being a fight all the time. We need to get, and to do that, you have to get rid of the Marxist categories. You've got to get rid of the class struggle stuff which really is a Marxist invention. Now, I've done a lot of public speaking at colleges, on college campuses, talked to a lot of student groups. And um, I have found that there are many women still who are attached to the term feminism. The reason people are attached to the term feminism is because they fill it with whatever they want it to mean. A lot of people just think feminism means I get to go to college. Okay. If that's what feminism means, I'm for it. You know what I mean? But you can't talk them out of what they think it means. So I think it's more constructive, rather than to say we're doing something different from feminism, it's more constructive to say um, we're doing something different from Marxism. Because there really aren't very many people who want to attach themselves to Marxism. Even the people who are deeply attached to Marxism, you know, they don't want to admit that they are deeply attached to it because it's stupid. You know, it doesn't look, it doesn't have the same cachet. Let's just leave it at that. Um, so that's what I'm working with right now is, is a strategy to try to, to try to redefine it instead of saying what we're against to try to say what we're positively for, which is the collaboration of men and women to the benefit of both and to the benefit of children. And also, I, I noticed in what you said, wasn't part of your question, but I want to draw it out, is that the attention to children is something that has been completely missed. You know, the, the fact is, that feminism and Marx in its Marxist forms and everything else, feminism has not been about children. It's been about men and women and the relations between men and women. You can read Engels and read the whole thing, and it's never there's never about babies. There aren't any babies. I don't know how they do this. You know, it's all about men and women, but there's no babies anywhere. So the the question of how babies are going to be taken care of that 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 still has to be solved. And you can tell nobody solved it because all the modern countries don't have babies anymore. You know, that's we sort of gave up on that because we don't have a category for it. This is not a good long-term strategy somehow. So, okay, who's got the mic? There we go. Go ahead. Can you speak to, especially since you're so involved with economics and women, I have been um, very invested in human trafficking and education and talked to a, a woman named Dr. Donna Hughes from Rhode Island. She said that... In the academic world, she is one of the only people she knows of who actually is fighting the legalization of prostitution. And she says in the academic world that is the, the, one of the hot issues, that, that if you are enlightened, you are pushing for yes. this. And, um, and, and especially it's being really uh, promulgated in Europe, all through Europe. But not, I don't know how much in this country. But can you speak to what is happening in academia that they could see this as a positive? How do they see legalizing prostitution as a positive? Okay, 
Um, the human was this Donna Hughes that you were talking yes, about? Yes, she's yeah. at University of Rhode Island. She's outstanding. I've read some of her stuff. I've never met her, but her her material is really quite good on this subject. Human trafficking um, is the dark side of prostitution, and I will tell you how the academics um, deal with this. Ment mentally, they're thinking prostitution is a business. They're thinking it's just a job, you know. And so the way to deal with it is to um, you know, regulate it, minimum wages, working conditions, stuff like that. that. That's the way they're thinking. And they're thinking that if you could regulate that market enough and treat it like a job, that would protect the women. Okay? Now, what's the error there? What's the problem? The problem is that they are seeing uh, sexual services as simply a service. They're not seeing that the sexual act is deeply connected to the person. And, and, and that the, you don't provide sexual services, you deliver your body to somebody, and that that's different in kind. Now, one reason Marxists don't get that is because they believe all workers are delivering their bodies to their owners, the, the, the employers, you see? And so because they believe that, they don't really see the difference. They don't see that sex work is different in kind from working at the Ford factory. They cannot see that because they've already convinced themselves that all laborers are basically wage slaves. So the only way to deal with that is to either overthrow the whole system or regulate it to, to improve the conditions. That's what they're thinking. I'm sorry to have to report that to you, but I believe that is what is going on. And, and once you grasp that that's what they're thinking, then their whole worldview starts to make sense. I mean, it's crazy, but it, but it makes sense. Because they believe that all economic transactions that we think of as free, they think none of them are free, right? And so they can't see the distinction between the sexual act and regular work. And therefore, therefore, the really heinous parts of sexual traffic, that's really, of sexual trafficking, where it really, truly, literally is slavery, they, they're blind to that because they've already used up the category of slavery. They've filled that with something else, something trivial, so they can't see that there's something way worse going on out there. Hi. Um, I'm wondering, you talked about the impact on uh, single parenting on children. I'm wondering, is there any research or studies that talk to the impact of children, of, of married couples, middle class, who put children in daycare to be able to improve themselves financially? Yes. There's a ton of work on daycare. Um, and daycare is, a, is an area where I've talked about daycare somewhat in uh, Love and Economics. Um, I am not a daycare absolutist, okay? There are daycare absolutists on both sides. People who say all children are fine in daycare. People who say daycare is a disaster all the time. I'm not, I'm not in either of those positions. But here, here's what I can tell you about that work. First of all, the people who say there are problems with daycare pretty much get run out of academic life, okay? Most of the work is done by women academics, who are all working mothers. What do you think they find most of the time? Yeah, the kids are great in daycare. Daycare is great. And the only thing we need to make daycare good is more money. It needs to be cheaper. If low-cost, high-quality daycare were available for everybody, it would all be fine. So there's that whole bias in it. The other thing... That's, that, that is going on, is that when children do poorly, it, it, first of all, just big, big, broad general statement that I know I can make with great confidence, not all children do well in daycare. 
Can we say that? Can we all agree to that? Not all children do well in daycare. I say this at campuses a lot, because I'll tell the girls, look, I know you think you're going to work exactly the same after your babies come. Okay, I know you think that, but just let me tell you something. Not all children do well in daycare. What are you going to do if you get a kid who doesn't do well in daycare? And you have your whole life planned around the fact that you and your husband are both going to be working full time. Your mortgage is set up around that fact, so on and so forth, so on and so on. They go, oh, 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 okay. So the fact is, not all kids do well in daycare. Well, what that means is when you've got kids who aren't doing well in daycare, if their parents take them out, those kids are no longer in the studies. Think about that. Those kids no longer show up in the studies of kids who are in daycare because their parents already took them out. <laughs> and they're at home. They're at home with mommy, you know, where that particular child really belonged. So the kids who are having, the, who would be the worst off if you went to like universal daycare, something like that, those kids aren't even showing up in the sample because they're all, they're all at home. So the parents are dealing with it. And here's the other thing that I say to, to, to young people. I think part of the reason that the daycare studies are mixed is that there are some people who use daycare because it's convenient and it works out for them, and then when things don't go well, they take their kids out. There are other people who are deeply committed to it, either financially or ideologically, and if things don't go well, they don't necessarily take their kids out. They, ha they, they for whatever reason, have it in their mind. They have to keep the kid in daycare. Okay, so... Some of the studies are going to show those kids who are going to be doing badly, who should have been taken out, they should have been brought home, they should have been drawn back out of it, being in fewer hours of daycare or whatever it is. So that's what I try to tell, tell the young, you know, that if you're in this situation, you, want to, you don't want to get yourself backed into a corner to where you can't take your kid out if you think you need to. So if you have that in your mind then you're, you know, you're going to make your plans in a much more sensible way. That's, that's what I try to tell them. And by the way, one other point that I'll make, that I always tell the kids this one, when I'm talking to them about gender differences, most of the time, the kids who do badly in daycares, are you ready for this? I see you're all sitting down. This is a good thing. Boys do worse in daycare. Are any of you surprised? <laughs> you send the girls to daycare, they come home with a bigger vocabulary. Right? And, this, and the academics are there with their clipboards taking notes going, oh, daycare's great, you know, the little girl, yeah, 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 all the things that happen in daycare. Little boys come home, throwing stuff, you know, biting, kicking, stuff like that. No, there is a big gender difference, I think, in the impact of daycare on kids. And I, know, I can see you're all shocked to hear this news. <laughs> Are, are there other questions? I, I, I'm allowed to keep going. Am I allowed to keep going, Chris? Are, cute. Last question. Oh, Karen, put that down. Goodness, I'm sorry I asked. Okay, make this a good question. <laughs> and actually, it's a comment on the gentleman from Kalamazoo. Um, I've. And I have an adopted daughter, so I have done some work with an adoption agency. I've also done work for the pro-life organizations. Uh -huh. And... Um, I think one thing the pro-life organizations uh, don't know about, perhaps, is that uh, young mothers are, are more likely to make a decision to adopt their child out if they're offered an open adoption. Yes. And I, I don't know even how I feel about that personally. I opted, I chose for a closed adoption, uh, you know, for personal reasons. But uh, that is one, one way to get them to consider it, 
is to have an open adoption where they can know the parents and yes. they can visit the child. And it makes them feel much better. The open adoption makes them feel much better about it, even if they don't use it, in fact, that much, even if they don't see the child that much. It, may, it allows them to get through that hump of making the decision to get through that. And, and I think th this is an important point, too, is that the biology of sex and motherhood is extremely powerful. And this is another thing that the left doesn't really want to talk about, is the biology of gender differences, is that giving birth to a baby, every fiber of your being wants to keep that baby. That's how we're put together. You know, and so if it's really not a good thing for you to keep that baby, you've got to do something to get over that hump. You've got to, you have to be able to help the girl get past that initial attachment to the baby, which is, you know, the initial attachment to the baby is good and important reality, you know, that's part of who we are as women, the fact that we're attached like that. But if it's really not good in that particular situation, you've got to have some strategy for helping her past it, and I agree with you. I'm sure that's the case, that the open adoption procedure um, is something that's, that, that is very helpful to a lot of the, of the young ladies in that situation. Do I really have to stop now, Karen? All right, one more. Okay. All right, back over here. Who's got the mic? Oh, Dave, give this man the mic back here. <clears throat> one more question. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, I'm interested in, in what are your thoughts on contraception and this whole theory that you have? Uh, you, th you factor that in, and what does that mean towards marriage, uh, the dying population, and everything else, and economics? Okay, that's not a very good last question. <laughs> How long do we have here? <laughs> okay, did you sign up for my newsletter, sir? Did you sign up for my newsletter? I have written a lot on this subject, actually. Actually, I've written a lot. Because the, the, um, the reality is that, that well, there, there, are a couple, there are a couple realities. Just briefly, <laughs> thank you, Karen, for delivering. You're now forgiven for shutting me down. Um, no, look, the, the, the biological reality is that human sexuality is meant to draw the couple closer together and is meant to produce a child. That's the physiology, re, physiological reality of human sexuality, is it's meant to build up the spouses as a couple and produce a child. Well, what we've done through contraception, and contra it's amazing how one technological thing had this big impact. Contraception not only breaks the link between sex and procreation, it also breaks the link between um, the couple as well. Because people don't take sex seriously. They don't take the choice of sex partner seriously. If you think to yourself, and this is a good one to do with the young, if you think to yourself, that if, if I had a baby with the person I'm having sex with, would that be an okay thing? Mo a lot of kids over at any of these colleges would be going, Holy mackerel, you know, like no stinking way would this be okay, you know, to have a baby with this person. Well, so then you say, well, you know, so what are you doing? You know, why? why? Yeah, it's fun, but there's other fun stuff you can do, you know. So that, that is a big part of the problem is that, is that people stop, they, they're not thinking about it in the wholly integrated uh, organic reality of what human sexuality is about. The other thing that's true about, um, about contraception is that you could view it simply as a technology that lets us change the probabilities of having of any particular sex act resulting in a baby. You could view it that way. But that's not, in fact, how we view it in this society. In fact, there's a whole ideology around contraception, 
which no one will admit that there's an ideology around it, but there is an ideology around it. And the ideology around it is that sex should be, is and properly should be, essentially a sterile activity. Say, we, are, we have built society around the premise that sex is essentially sterile with reproduction thrown in as an afterthought if you happen to like that sort of thing. You know, but the whole society is organized on the premise that you're entitled to count on contraception functioning perfectly each and every time. Therefore, sex is a sterile activity. Therefore, sex in the modern world can't possibly mean what it's always meant in every other time and place. So if you take the, 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 just the simple fact of the technology, the convenience of the technology, and then wrap that ideology around it too, that, I think, is what accounts for the really devastating collapse in the birth rates all around the world. Because we've, we've created societies that don't really know what to do with babies. You know, babies are an inconvenience now. Babies are a disruption. Babies are like a surprise. It's like, you know, you really shouldn't be surprised. This is how it works, you guys. You know, babies, you know, <clears throat> people, think, people think that babies come from failed contraception. They don't get that babies come from sex. You know, that's kind of a basic point. <laughs> but anyway, I think I'll stop there. I'll drag the acting into a place they don't want to go.